Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Jack Buckner. Jack is the CEO at British Swimming, the national governing body for swimming, paraswimming, diving, synchronised swimming, water polo and open water sports in Great Britain. Jack is an experienced CEO with a lifetime of sports experience behind him, having competed for Great Britain in two Olympic Games as an athlete. Jack, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for us as well um, to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally at this point in the show, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID situation, I think it is appropriate that we begin with that because it has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself and for British Swimming and indeed sports as a whole, just to what extent it affected you and the sector? It's been huge, really. Um, I think like all of us in society, it's turned our world upside down and it's been incredibly challenging. The most obvious um, challenge for us was the uh, Olympics in Tokyo and Paralympics have been postponed. Mm. So most of our energy was focused on that. And then suddenly um, it's gone. Uh, All our athletes and swimmers were out of the water and um, sports stopped. So um, it's been a massive challenge. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to um, overplay it, though, because it's, it's, it's been a challenge in all walks of life. So we've all had to adapt and try and make good decisions under a lot of pressure. And what can you see the long-term effects of this pandemic being on sport? Because even when we do have a working vaccine in place, hopefully, and COVID itself is no longer an issue, there could be something of a COVID hangover for quite some time yet, just because of the anxiety that's come about as a result of this. I agree. I think people love their sport. And what we've learned through this is sport's really important in lots of people's lives. So as we've gradually got people back, we've seen the joy in their faces, And certainly with something like swimming, people just love it. And um, so it really is important. So I think, as I say, it's an important part of people's lives. At the same time, the actual mechanics, um, the economics, and particularly events with spectators and that atmosphere, it still feels a long way away. And how we can afford to stage events and and have sport as it used to be is going to be a massive challenge for all of us. It certainly is going to be very interesting times for the industry as a whole, because even we're seeing in um, a lot of mainstream sports now as well that crowds haven't been able to return in October as planned, and that's going to have a significant impact on the industry going forward, and it is looking at ways that it can survive uh, the impact of that um, well into the uh, the spring, as the Prime Minister himself has projected these restrictions will be in place for. Um, looking back, however, over the, uh, the last few months and sort of looking forward to what's going to be needed in the months to come, would you say that you've learnt anything in your leadership capacity from all of this, Jack, in having to adapt to a new reality? And there are some even minor positives that you can take from this terrible experience. 
Um, yes, I mean, you, you, you're right, it's challenging. and we, All our comments need to be couched in respect for what everyone else has been through. Certainly, I think what we've been good at is um, operational planning and making quick decisions. People in elite sport tend to be naturally good and adept at change. Um, they're agile. Yeah, sports people deal with problems all the time and you overcome it. And my organization has been very good at what we call pencil planning. So we do a plan in pencil. We rub it out the next day. We do another plan. So rather than getting too um, focused on the kind of big strategy stuff, we've had to do agile, effective plans. What we've also tried to do is keep a positive mindset. So in terms of looking forward to the Olympics and Paralympics, we're telling ourselves and our staff and our athletes, we're going to make this a competitive advantage. We're going to be the best at pencil planning. We're going to have quick plans. We're going to be very adaptive. And we're going to move forward in the circumstances in a really positive way. And what's been great about my organization is the responsiveness of everyone to that approach. And it is that sort of reactive and adaptive approach, as you mentioned there, that is needed from all business during this time, because there isn't any long term at the moment to actually plan for, because guidelines and circumstances can change at such short notice that the long term is no longer months and years. It's now days and weeks, isn't it, at the most? It is. And I think that's another challenge for leaders as well, because you can exist for a period of time in this operational day-to-day planning. But as it unfolds, there's another level of challenge, which is the strategic view on sport in the UK. Mm. Where are we going with this? Where are we going with our organizations? And what's our operating model? And as the financial pressures increase, it's causing us to ask some fundamental questions. And I think we need to have the courage to do that. Is the time right for some form of structural change? What are we responsible for? What are our real core areas of expertise? And what could we partner with others around? So in that sense, it's really important to keep strong stakeholder and partner relationships, but also have the courage to try and think things through in the longer term, because I'm pretty sure things are not going to go back to how they were before. Certainly the financial effect on all of us is absolutely massive. And sustaining our organizations in the ways we have done is going to be almost impossible, particularly because I think there have been some consumer shifts in behavior that are probably going to continue in the way of digital, digital media and consumption and online and all these kind of things. So whilst we do this operational planning, we also have to have the courage to think strategically about this sort of paradigm shift for the new world ahead of us. Exactly right, because um, it is going to be a period of all change and business is going to have to be ready to seize upon the opportunities and adapt to what is ultimately a changing world. So, yeah, very, very interesting time to come for sure. Um, We should move on and address leadership in a broader sense, just because that is um, the point of why we're here, Jack. And um, I always like to sort of ask the question to guests that come on to the show. What were some of the key influences earlier in your life which sort of took you down the uh, the career path of being an athlete and then becoming CEO of um, a, a sporting governing body? And indeed, what sort of influenced you in your success competing in two Olympic Games and becoming a 5,000 metre European champion? So I think um, I'm one of these people who love sport and I love the 
challenge of running, and I still do. Sport gives you a real simple, clear objective, and you commit yourself to it, which I've absolutely loved and enjoyed through my career. It's um, I like the tension of competing, and I like the excitement and the opportunities it provided. I think also you get quite closely aligned to what I call the coaching approach to leadership. And I certainly went into leadership roles out of sport with that in my mind, that I was a coach. And um, I, my role as a leader is to coach others. And generally that served me well um, because it encourages you to give people autonomy, uh, to express themselves and to operate quite independently. At times that approach has been challenged because when you're dealing with large organizations and complexity, sometimes the boundaries you give need to be tighter. But in general, I would describe myself as a, as a coach leader who wants to get the best out of everyone and, and, and uh, in, as individuals and as in teams. And sort of thinking about um, some of um, the younger people out there at the moment that may be sort of disheartened by the uh, the current situation, um, especially in the impact that it's going to have on their employment prospects. As somebody who's excelled in the uh, the world of sport and the world of business, what words of advice would you give them to get them to pick their heads up and get them on the road to success? I think um, it is challenging and let's not beat about the bush. It is challenging at the moment. But I think if you can have a positive mindset and look for opportunities, in some ways, the world out there today, there is a lot of opportunity. Um, with the growth of online, digital, learning opportunities, uh, with networks, with all the things like LinkedIn and other ways of communicating, you have access to a far bigger universe. And if you can approach that in a positive way and you can build your networks, learn quickly, adapt, have agile skills, think through the skills you've got, and also be entrepreneurial. Whilst it's really challenging, there are opportunities out there. I've done some teaching work with Loughborough University on the um, postgraduate course. It's great to see people there really grasping opportunities and being agile in their approach, flexible, trying to build networks. And I think also probably you have to be open to shorter-term periods of work because there's a lot of kind of flexible opportunities. So you kind of build a career through chunks, which I think is probably a bit more alien to someone of my age and from Mm. my background. But the positive young people I see are really good at doing that. Yes, exactly. And I think that's very sound advice indeed for any youngsters that may be tuning into this and seeking opportunities that are out there. I'm also interested to understand, Jack, that um, are there any elements of leadership that you sort of took directly from your days competing that you've managed to sort of integrate into your business career and use to mould your own leadership style these days? I have done to some extent, and, and that's been good and, and also challenging in many ways. As a runner, you tend to make individual decisions. And the great athletes are very good at making decisions under pressure, taking accountability and getting on with it. So um, that's a natural thing for me to do. I'm very comfortable making decisions, moving on and charging off. And at times, that's been really effective in my career. On other times, I've had to kind of turn around and think, whoa, 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 steady on a minute, Jack. You've got to bring the rest of the organization with you. And almost as a runner, I got the best out of myself when I was measured and didn't charge off too quickly. 
And I know at times there's a kind of gut reaction in me, which is to kind of charge off that pace. And, and I tend to find myself almost moving too fast for the organization that I'm leading. So I have to kind of balance my individualistic desire to get things done and, and impulsive leadership tendencies mm. with a sense of judging the pace of leadership that's appropriate for the organization. And I think that varies by sectors as well. Um, I've spent a lot of my career in the commercial sector where that kind of you know, charging ahead, quick decisions, entrepreneurial instincts serves you well. Now in governing body world and to some extent a bit more public sector, I've learned that you need to bring people with you and your partners and stakeholders. And that's as important as making the decision of moving quickly. Indeed, that is all part of a uh, leader's role, being able to get people to buy into your vision and take people with you. That is very, very right indeed. And um, another thing um, important um, in the context of uh, leadership, of course, which has been brought back into the limelight of the national discussion by COVID-19 is mental health and well-being. That was very much highlighted during the lockdown due to the social isolation element of it all. But then post-lockdown, when sport did begin to return, a lot was made of the importance of sport in mental health and wellness. So when it comes to leadership, just how important is mental health and well-being for you? Oh, it's huge. And um, everything you say there really chimes. I think sport can really help in people's mental health. And there's lots of evidence of that, the experience of doing it, the experience of uh, spectating and the social milieu. So I think sport is a, a natural outlet for lots of personal expression and, and generally incredibly positive on mental health. I think in leadership, particularly during isolation, we checked in a lot with staff and we've seen that sense of isolation and at times loss of uh, direction really or purpose can be incredibly challenging. So I think we've, we've tried a lot of techniques to try and um, uh, boost uh, my colleagues and staff's mental health in different ways. And um, it's been, we've, we've tried to adapt that to the different individuals as well and different needs of different colleagues. So I think you're absolutely right. Mental health is, is hugely important. And I think in some ways, now we've sort of gone back into this kind of, are we in lockdown, are we not, and, and all of that. I think it's going to be even more severely tested in the next few months because at least um, almost the first wave of COVID, you know, it was when the summer and the sun was shining, we were able to get outdoors. I think this next period is going to be even more challenging because of, um, you know, the darkness and the winter, which is a naturally more challenging time. So Mm. what I'm trying to do at the moment as a leader is get the organization's mindset into, this is going to be a long haul, you have to pace yourself, go steady, let's get through this together and almost mentally preparing all of us as individuals and the organisation for that longer haul. And indeed, if we talk about that longer haul in a little bit more detail, just before we do finish up, because I am conscious that our time on the programme is drawing to its close, um, where is it that you see British swimming being in a year's time and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as we keep getting to grips with this new normal and strive to leave COVID-19 behind for good? Well, the big thing for us will be the Olympics and the Paralympics. And despite everything, we're really looking forward to the Olympics and Paralympics. 
So if this next time, this time next year, you're picking up the phone to me and we've had a great Olympics and Paralympics and we're feeling positive, we've established great role models, we've delivered what we can in what we call winning well, we want to win, but we want to win well and all the things that's associated with that in terms of mental health benefits and positiveness. And we're now looking forward to um, Paris 2024 with a strong, sound organization building for the future. I would take that. I think those are fantastic ambitions and I certainly hope that there's all the luck in the world in making that become a reality because we have a fantastic set of um, Olympians um, who are all raring to go and we're chomping at the bit this year, I'm absolutely sure, and are probably very disappointed at what's happened. And I actually think, Jack, just given what you just mentioned there, picking up the phone in a year's time, being able to tell us about the success at the Olympics and how the organisation's been doing in the last year, I actually think it would be wonderful to do that. I would love to welcome you back onto our show at some point after those Olympics have happened and just see exactly what you've achieved in the time between. Thank you very much, Scott. Let's uh, let's look forward to that. Let's certainly look forward to it. For now, it's been such a pleasure to welcome you onto the programme and I've thoroughly enjoyed your company. It's been so intellectually stimulating for myself and I'm sure also for the listeners tuning in. And until we do get to speak again, Jack, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with COVID-19 yet, but let's keep our fingers crossed that it won't be too long of a haul. Thank you very much, Scott, and all the very best to you as well. Take care. I would also repeat that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning into this today. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome British Swimming CEO and former Olympian Jack Butler onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's former cricket captain, Sir Andrew Strauss. So we're very much keeping uh, the theme sport related. Um, During his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. So quite an impressive resume. Since retiring, he has spent a brief period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, as well as becoming a champion for mental health and charitable concerns. And I do hope that everybody enjoys listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, 
uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, uh, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's 
easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so f- so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So, if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.